Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be playing my interview with Alex Lacamoire, who's won Tonys and Emmys and Grammys. He's a musical director for Broadway shows who's worked on a bunch of things. He worked on Dear Evan Hansen, he worked on In the Heights. But the subject mostly at hand today is that he was the musical director for Hamilton, which is very much back on everyone's mind thanks to the Disney Plus movie version with the original cast. Even the soundtrack is back on the upper reaches of Rolling Stone's charts, thanks to everyone running right over to streaming after watching the show. So it seemed like a great time to talk to Alex. Here's how that went. Thank you for having me, Brian. Pleasure. So I thought I would take you back to the very beginning. Even before your first meeting with Lin-Manuel Miranda, maybe you could talk about how you got to the place where that first meeting might even happen. Well, the good news is that I've had a lot of people recommend me to the team. And this is dating back to probably 2003 or so, or maybe even 2002, uh, when In the Heights was still starting the forum. And uh, I got a call from Kevin McCollum, a producer who I had met on a show that I was working on called Bat Boy the Musical. And Kevin called me up and said, hey, I know this composer. And he plays piano a little bit, but not enough to really flesh out his songs. And I think he could use someone to collaborate with. And uh, I spoke with Lin-Manuel on the phone. And at the time, it was more a call to suggest other composers for him to work with versus, you know, me, myself as an arranger for him. But uh, eventually, you know, Lin realized that he didn't need another composer to write with. What he needed was someone to help uh, arrange his ideas uh, either on a piano or for a band or for vocal arrangements and what have you. And uh, he already had a friend of his from school that he was working with called Bill Sherman. And uh, basically, Bill and I became the arrangers of In the Heights. And we worked together and met through that project. And what struck me about Lynn back then was I heard a demo of In the Heights. And right away, I heard his voice rapping in Spanglish, in a cadence that was so well-versed in hip-hop. There was something about it, you know, the music felt lived in. You know, it wasn't anyone putting on airs of trying to write hip-hop or, you know, trying to, you know, imitate a vein. It was just natural to him. And that's one of the things I love so much about Lin is that his DNA is made up of so many different kinds of music, whether it's Broadway, whether it's pop, whether it's hip-hop. It's all just fused together in this wonderful stew that everything just comes out natural for him. So it was one of these uh, relationships that just kind of sparked because he's, as you see, you know, anytime you see him in an interview, he's just so generous and so kind and so funny and winning. And, and I think both of us having had, you know, growing up Latino kids and both of us loving musical theater, both of us loving music, we just uh, hit it off. And it was, it's one of these relationships that I am extremely, extremely grateful for because, um, you know, it could have gone another way, you know, but I had Kevin McCollum in my corner. I had a bunch of friends from high school in Miami who had done workshops of In the Heights. And they said to Lin-Manuel, hey, you need to meet Alex. He's from Miami. He's Cuban. He's a, a, a MD. Uh, he's working on Broadway right now, whatever. There were enough people pulling for me that, that got me connected with the right people. You were involved with Hamilton since it wasn't even necessarily intended to be a musical per se. It was right. his original idea was the Hamilton mixtape, which could have been like a, almost a concept album if exactly. it didn't turn out to be a musical. And I guess was the first you heard of it, the White House performance, or had he discussed this idea with you before that? So Lynn had mentioned it after he came back from a vacation where he read the biography. And the first time I actually heard the song, it was actually for a different event that wasn't the White House. It was um, 
an opportunity that Lynn had been given to uh, perform a song where it was meant to honor Karen Olivo, who was one of the alumnus, alumni <laughs> of In the Heights. And I think Lynn's idea originally was, hey, let's perform this opening number from Hamilton and have Karen sing the hook. And then we realized, you know, it wasn't quite enough, a big enough bite out of the apple for uh, that to be a performance to honor Karen. So it seemed like that wasn't the right venue to premiere that piece. So then, as luck would have it, Lynn was invited to perform at the White House. They asked him to perform something from In the Heights because that's what he was known for. And he said, well, actually, I have this other piece <laughs> that might be perfect for the White House. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Lynn just had the courage to premiere that piece. You know, no one else had heard it at that time. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was interesting that the first time people were hearing it was when we were performing it for the new <laughs> president that had just been inaugurated four months prior and the first lady, uh, you know, who invited us over. It was like an exciting time to be at the White House because, as you know, like the way the country felt, the way the energy was around this new administration, there was just uh, so much excitement. And to be in the same room with the Obamas was just like electricity. It was really uh, unbelievable. Before we get into the details of the White House performance, when he came back from that vacation, and that vacation is sort of historic at this point, it's kind of like the vacation that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg went on and they came back with Indiana Jones. It's a little bit like that. But anyway, Lynn came back and he said, I want to do a hip hop thing with the life of Alexander Hamilton. You were one of the first people on earth to hear that idea. What was your re initial reaction to that? So I tell the story often. You know, when I heard it, I admired the verbal dexterity of it. I could tell, my God, he's packing a lot of information in a very short amount of time. Uh, the writing is, is very sophisticated. Like, I was uh, on board with the craft of it. But in terms of a piece, like, I couldn't tell if it was meant to be tongue-in-cheek. It seemed like such an outlandish pairing. I say this, you know, in a way that like, wow, I should have known better. <laughs> but you also meet so many people that say the same thing. You know, I would describe the show to so many people when they would ask me what I was working on. And the reaction, by and large, would always be the same. You know, they would tilt their heads, they would squint their eyes and say, well, that's an interesting idea and not really grasp it until they actually got to see it. And they realized, oh, oh no, Lynn is dead serious about this. This is a pairing that I never would have thought of, but it completely goes together. Yeah, it wasn't until Lynn wrote the second song, which is My Shot, that I really realized that, no, Lynn is all in. You know, that is, uh, <laughs> once I heard that song, and again, you know, it's written so extremely well, and the couplets within it are just mind-blowing, and the the cadence of it, the over-the-barn-line rhymes, the, the intention of it, you know, and I often say that when I heard that song, I had a feeling that I think a lot of other people had, which is, my God, it made American history seem so freaking cool. <laughs> it was the song Alexander Hamilton, the opening song of what became the musical that he performed at the White House with you. And the YouTube clip of that is a kind of classic in its own right. First of all, there's Barack and Michelle Obama, as you mentioned, just looking right at you in this very small crowd in the White House. And Lynn introduces the song and basically says it's he's going to rap about Alexander Hamilton, and which gets a laugh before he even starts. And then he's rapping over your piano accompaniment, just that, which is a difficult and ballsy thing in any context, let alone when you're doing what you were doing at the White House. So maybe just take us through what all that was like. I'm, I'm thrilled uh, the White House called me uh, tonight uh, because uh, I'm actually working on a hip-hop album. Uh, it's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip-hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you laugh! 
but it's true. Um, he, was, uh, he was born a, a penniless orphan uh, in St. Croix of illegitimate birth, um, became George Washington's right-hand man, uh, became Treasury Secretary, caught beef with every other founding father, uh, and all on the strength of his writing. I think he embodies uh, the word's ability to make a difference. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be doing the first song from that tonight. I'm accompanied by Tony and Grammy-winning music director Alex Lacamoire. Uh, anything you need to know, I'll be playing uh, Vice President Aaron Burr, uh, and snap along if you like. <laughs> How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by Providence impoverished? I remember being so extremely nervous because, you know, first of all, it's the Obamas. Second of all, it's the White House. I've never been there. Third of all, it's just me. And I just remember the feeling of not wanting to mess up. You know, I remember like, I can't make a mistake. I don't want this to, you know, like this is being seen. This is, I, I see these cameras that are filming it. And if you look at that video, my grin is so wide and is so overly huge. And even as I'm smiling at the White House, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm smiling really big. I need to tone this down a notch, but I couldn't do anything. I was like frozen. And uh, there was just so much adrenaline. And, and you know, you, you see it within Lynn, too. You're like, you know, he's talking a mile a minute. And we're both just very, very apt and just very hype. And um, not only that, as I mentioned, I didn't know that that uh, event was going to be filmed in that way. So a few months later, we're like on YouTube and like our thing is there and people are seeing it and people are commenting on it and it's getting views. Like we didn't expect any of that. We were just going to the White House to, to perform for the Obamas at a cool spoken word event. So that was a, a real nice treat that that moment got documented in that way because that was just icing on the cake, really. I interviewed Lynn just when the show was hitting, just before the cast album was out. And he certainly had a lot of confidence in what he had done without being cocky, without being arrogant. I think he had some sense that it was going to be received as a major cultural event as it was. And would it be accurate to say he had that sense early on or else he wouldn't have brought it out in such a public way so early in its creation? Yeah, uh, and that's where Tommy Carroll, our director, comes into the picture. Because what we know is that Lynn came back from this vacation and felt inspired, right? He, he felt energized to create something because he was so moved by what he read. He saw a, a connection between this person's life and hip-hop music and was able to just like fuse the, the two things together. And he had written just that one song, the opening number that was performed at the White House. And it took a year before he wrote My Shot. And it took him a long time because he admitted that he knew that this introduction to Alexander Hamilton, you know, the first time we were going to hear him speak in this piece, the raps had to be so good and there had to be so much bravado. And Lynn said this needed to be the best rap song I've ever written. Like he just knew that it had to possess that charge that was worthy of the man that he was writing about. And Tommy Kale saw Lynn perform My Shot at an event in New York in Ars Nova at the theater and basically said to Lynn, it's like, listen, this is amazing. Like Tommy saw the reaction that it got from the crowd. Tommy heard that the power within that song and said, Lynn, if you're only writing a song a year, like we're going to be 50 by the time you finish this. So like, let's get going. So basically it was conversations between Tommy and Lynn about what it wanted to be. Tommy then read the biography and then they started to talk about what are the, you know, the flagpole moments within the show? What are the events that we lead up to? What are the things that get, that get musicalized? What's the shape of the show? So the architecture of that is really Lynn and Tommy in their conversations and 
I come in once Lynn's songs are written, you know, once the compositions are there and once I can contribute ideas and make suggestions. But yeah, truly the formation of the story and, uh, you know, those uh, key moments that comes from conversations with Tommy as our director. Did you hear interim versions of my shot along the way? You know, I didn't. I I feel like the first time I heard my shot was when it was a, a fully formed demo. And Lynn is very generous with the work that he creates. Like when he writes something, usually he'll send demos out to his friends right away and say, hey, check this out. This is like, you know, it's a feeling of being a proud parent, right? Like he creates this piece and he wants to share it with people. So, you know, it's funny. I should go back in my emails and see if I have an email of my shot laying around somewhere. That would be fun to dig up. How much changed between the version on the demo and what we ended up hearing? Yeah, you know, it's fun to trace the the process of like what it goes through. Because again, one of the things I love so much about theater is the way a piece evolves and the changes that it goes through and how it eventually like winds up getting distilled and changes happen and it gets better and more focused and tighter. So the first version that I got a chance to perform was at an event that we did at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the Allen Room in January of 2012. And at that time, my shot had a big, big rap from Hercules Mulligan inside of it that, you know, winds up in present day, wound up getting cut from my shot and placed in Yorktown instead. And in terms of the, the arrangement of it, what changed, I think it became more for me about, okay, how does this song that exists in a computer get translated to a live band? And that was for me about, okay, let's say the drums do this. Let's say that the bass line should be that. And it's taking uh, what Lynn suggested in his demo and making uh, slight adjustments, whether they're about, oh, maybe stop the, you know, have the band laid down a little low here to highlight the vocal. Maybe the band stops completely here to feature the vocal. You know, they're they're just like musical uh, suggestions about what the instruments could play to make it feel like a... um, something that highlights the story at times. Like, for example, there's this one part where, in Hercules Mulligan's rap, where he would, I'm trying to remember, it was a very kind of long, threaded, like, you know, one of these, like, crazy, like, long Busta Rhymes raps where there's no breath taking for, like, you know, eight to 16 bars or so. But within that, I remember being inspired by the fact that it felt like it had a big build to it. And because of that... I suggested this bass line that also built. So instead of the drums just kind of grooving, I suggested the bass line could actually be something like, and the drums instead just go, so this big gradual growth to, you know, it's like basically, it's like going up a roller coaster, you know, like climbing, climbing, climbing until you achieve the release. So those are the kinds of ideas as an arranger that I tried to throw in. So ideas like that, that I threw in in 2012, thankfully make it into the finished product because that baseline wound up being the baseline that you hear when Hamilton says, I know the action in the street is exciting, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's just one example of an idea that, that gets thrown in and stays. Another one is um, that chant, the rise up when you're living on your knees, you rise up. That happened far into the process of the show. That happened, I think, about a year before we went on to the public, when we went to Off-Broadway. So that came out of an idea of like, hey, we need to, uh, to hear from people other than Hamilton. We need to hear how the thought of revolution is affecting other people. We need other characters to speak and to be so inspired by what Hamilton is saying that they join his cause and, you know, revolution occurs because, you know, a greater mass of people yearn for change, etc. So it's all driven by story. It's all driven by uh, emotion within the music. So, yeah. I mean, I had a general thought and it, it's funny. I have a feeling that the manuel might not 
agree as much as possible. You might agree, but I feel like when these songs get filtered through your sensibility and when they get arranged for a live band and then in the versions that we end up hearing, I feel like it ends up being more in a sort of rap rock vein ultimately than, uh, you know, obviously and in the vein of musical theater, that goes without (laughs) saying, but than like sort of a a pure hip-hop thing. If I had to categorize what I really hear when I hear Mm. my shot... I mean, and, and to me, that's not an insult because there's, you know, obviously rap rock includes, you know, Hits Machine and a Million. But that's kind of the idiom that I end up hearing it in. Does that, <laughs> what do you make of that idea? Well, a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind is that for us, and for us, I mean myself and our creative team, you know, the live element is something that's so important to us. And, you know, there is a world where Hamilton could have been completely, like, DJed, right? And everything is yeah. tracked and everything is running off of Ableton. And these are all loops that were pre-programmed and pre-done. Um, you know, and that could have been a very interesting uh, and exciting way to present the story. But I love live music. And I love the, that that is one of the things that theater celebrates is uh, musicians playing live and getting together to create music. So I was way more interested in um, having loops and track stuff be a part of the fabric of the band rather than have it be the the, the central uh, thing that binds it all together, if you know what I mean. So I suppose that, you know, if you're picking up on rock sensibilities, it's probably uh, the fact that it's a, it's a, you know, pop rhythm section playing these songs. Like we have electric bass playing, right? We have electric guitar, we have acoustic drums, but they're also playing with synth drums, right? There's times that we hear loops playing as well. We hear like electronic keyboard sounds that are more in the hip hop idiom than they might be in, in the the typical quote-unquote musical theater idiom. So there's probably some of that that you're picking up on. And, you know, I'm also a, a true, like, classic rock uh, diehard fan. And, you know, my influences run deep in that world as well. So I, I can't help but think that, you know, there's a natural part of my DNA that no matter how hard I try, like, you will always hear a little bit of Zeppelin. You will always hear a little bit of Rush <laughs> in, in what it is that I create and, and what I write. So, yeah, I, I think uh, that might be what sticks out to you is I think it, it comes from whatever kind of roots we have uh, within our, our, our writing, plus the, the live band element. Tell me about the demos and what the challenges and pleasures were of kind of translating them into something that, of both orchestrating them because you're, you're kind of expanding on the harmonies, you're putting in parts that aren't there, but also translating. So, Because I, I think there's other Broadway composers who work in a much more traditional way. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is Lynn works more like in, in a sort of more modern way, using computer assistance mm-hmm. and using your assistance, your <laughs> human assistance to to bring it to life. So, so just explain how that works and what's interesting about it. Yeah. Well, so what I love is Lynn has an ability to create demos that to me are so crystal clear in terms of what he wants the, the song to sound like. And he's also very open about that. You can go to Lynn manuels SoundCloud and he posts demos of stuff that he's written along the way. And that, that's actually a great way for anyone who's interested in the arranging orchestration process to see how it gets from point A to, to B, because those demos are, are, are what I receive. And then it becomes my job to take that demo and to realize, okay, what, what are the parts where I feel like it needs to be verbatim what Lynn gave me? What are the parts that I feel like there's a little bit of leeway? And what are the parts that I feel like it needs to uh, potentially have a different chord underneath it or a different ending, a different introduction, you know, uh, little things. But at the end of the day, like the composer is is the one who calls the shots, right? It, it's in service of the piece. And my work as an arranger and orchestrator does not exist without what it is that I'm given by the composer. But 
Lin, in his demo writing, is excellent at finding sounds that evoke what he's after. Like, he'll find some cool synth-based sound. He'll find some cool drum loops. He'll find some great, you know, backwards-sounding piano effect and, and drop it into his demo. So just when you open it up out of the box, already his demo has color within it. Like, it shows, oh, this is a, a modern sound, right? Or you're able to hear another demo where... It's not as contemporary, quote unquote, and instead it relies on the piano and it relies on what the strings give to it. You know, a song like um, uh, Burn, when you hear that demo, was very based around the piano and the feeling of strings. And it did have an undercurrent of hip hop with the kick drum sample that was underneath it. But you can tell that the, the leaning of it was a little bit more organic, I think, than uh, um, synthetic, for lack of a better term. So it, it becomes incumbent on me to, okay figure out what is the true story that's being told. How should this song feel? You know, what are the sounds that we want to accentuate? What are the times that I feel like, okay, I think Lynn meant this to sound this way. And I take bold swings, you know, I'll try ideas. I'll run them by Lynn. He'll tell me if he digs it. He'll tell me if he doesn't. And um, I've now worked with him enough that I can predict what I think he'll be into. And he's known me long enough to, to know how to be honest with me when I'm throwing in too many ideas at once. <laughs> and he'll tell me when I need to slow down. And, you know, instead of presenting 10 ideas at once, like whittle it down to five. Um, so he, he's good at, at that. You know, I, I tend to find that for all my ideas that tend to get overly complicated and, and to, uh, you know, quote unquote clever, Lynn will be able to like whittle them down to their essence and be like, you know, it needs to be this. This is at the heart of what you're trying to say. And, you know, he'll, he'll make it the cleaner that way. You had to dig back into all this in order to finish uh, the music for the movie version, right? So what happened was when we filmed the movie version in 2016, we always knew we were going to wait before releasing it. Like it was never our intention to release it right away. We had always kind of like arbitrarily said, we'll release it in five years or so. And then um, as the movie got shopped around, Disney bought it. And we were originally planning to release the movie in theaters in, I believe, the fall of 2021. And then the pandemic happened. And uh, as Lynn said, the world turned upside down. And it seemed like there was a big, strong desire for people to have it sooner than uh, what we had anticipated. You know, our, our first reaction to releasing the film on the streaming service was, if I read recently, you know, was a pass. And they didn't want it to happen, but then after thinking about it and realizing that it was going to be a long while before a theater gets back up and running, there just was an opportunity for us to be able to give the show to people, especially when it was hard to get access to the show. Never mind the, the COVID shutdown, but just like, you know, the theater can only hold so many people at once, and the show is only playing in so many places at once. So I think in this past week, more people have seen the show Hamilton than in all the productions that have happened in the country or the world up until then, which is staggering to think about it. And it's hard to wrap the brain around. But, um, you know, all this to say, um, in getting it ready for this early release, we had to finish the sound elements of the mix in a very short amount of time remotely, without being together, being separated. So it was a very intense couple of weeks of trying to push to get that deadline, uh, you know, to get everything accomplished by the deadline. And I'm very, very proud of our team for what they were able to do, how they were able to do it, the amount of hours they invested, the amount of overtime they invested just because they wanted this to be good. So um, yeah, it, it was supposed to happen very differently. Was anything that we hear overdubbed fixed in this movie? So... 
What I love about our movie is that it is the live performance of Hamilton. It's not the cast album. It's not us being in a studio. It is us capturing what was happening live on stage. In terms of like fixing, like the only kinds of quote unquote fixing that happens is like the mixing that happens after the fact, right? Like if you have, for example, 11 ensemble vocals that were tracked, you have to go in there and you have to edit the blend of them, right? And because you're listening to it in a medium that's much more focused, you know, there are things that... You know, if, if someone cuts off a note late in a, a theater, you might not ever hear that when you're sitting on your seat because there's so much reverb in the room. You know, uh, you're, you're taking in this greater product that you don't notice these things. But once you're presented with a, a medium where everything is under a microscope like it is on TV and film, you hear little inconsistencies and, and little quote unquote mistakes that happen in that way. So by and large, the fixings that happens were like natural editing that happens like when you make a cast album or something, which is like, you know, trying to clean up the intention of what was meant to be said and what was meant to be there. Because we all intended to end the note on the downbeat, but like if there's a straggler here and there, you try to, you know, shape it up a little bit. But by and large, we didn't want to lose the, the live element of what's there in, in the film. So truly what it is, it's the live essence of it. It's there. It's like, it's what you hear is what Leslie Odom Jr. gave on those performances that were tracked. What you hear is what Renee Elise Goesberry sang when she sang Satisfied in front of everybody. It's like, we weren't stopping and going back and saying, oh, we need to do that over and over again, you know, when we were in front of a live audience. We were performing the show live and in the element. And, you know, that was also very nerve-wracking for us. And I know for, for myself, being in the pit playing that, like, I've never wanted to not make a mistake in my life so much as those two and a half hours that I was playing the show. Are there moments that struck you anew in particular as you got this chance to revisit in this very stressed out way, admittedly, <laughs> something that you hadn't been involved with for a while? Yeah, you know, I, I loved going back and revisiting this movie because we worked on it over the course of, uh, I guess, four years from filming to release. And we worked on it maybe like for about two or three months every year and a half. And every time I went back to it, like it was truly fun to relieve the memories of either performing it for those performances or the memories that led up to the creation of those songs. You know, as I watch it, I can't help but put myself back in that place of being at that podium performing and watching that show and thinking about, oh yeah, you know, like I, I remember sitting uh, next to Pippa and figuring out how that riff goes. You know, I remember uh, when I decided that I wanted to put a banjo in the room where it happens. You know, all of a sudden, like, I had these weird, like, blips of, of memories. And, and it's like a scrapbook in a way when I watch this movie. And it's a way to go back in time for me to remember what the energy felt like in the Rogers at that time. You know, what the response was to the show, the impact that it was having, and the love that was around it. Um, it's really um, it's gratifying and wonderful and... I love going back and watching the film and, and um, you know, seeing different angles because when you sit in a theater and watch a show, you get to choose what angle you want to watch, right? You can either look at the performer or while they're singing, you can focus on what the lights are doing or you can focus on who is around on the surround and who's on this part of the stage and who's not. This film is one vantage point of Hamilton the musical. And you could have a different editor and they would have given you a completely different film. Or you could go watch the show another night, you know, six months later than after we recorded it or six months prior to when we recorded it. And it would be a different experience and a different uh, performance. And I love that this is just one way of seeing the show. It's not the only way, right? We're all going to be hungering for the opportunity to sit in a dark theater one day and see uh, performances again, to see people do this live in front of us, to see that amazing 
tightrope act that actors do when they're performing live in front of you. So it's this mixture of both longing for that opportunity to experience live theater again and being really proud of this documented performance of this one, you know, time uh, in our timeline. Let's talk about Yorktown for a second. Uh, pretty powerful stuff, obviously. Vocal harmonies, a lot going on there. What, what are your memories of, of that taking shape? So... I remember that that to me, even from the demo, was just like a banger. <laughs> and like the figure to me was so exciting. Um, and again, like, you know, you talk about like the rap rock tendencies, you know, that figure just alone, the, like that could have been like, you know, some Limp biscuit <laughs> or like Rage Against the Machine kind of like rap rock uh, figure easily. Let, um, let's hope Lynn's not listening now. I'm sure he doesn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, instead, I knew that that could have been like an, a very easy way to turn up the distorted guitar and have it be this crazy, uh, uh, you know, aggro <laughs> corn sound alike. But instead, like we leaned into like the strings. We leaned into, leaned into the synthetic elements of it and made it feel like a little bit more... Um, I don't know, just a little less like rock, <laughs> a little less rock horns and uh, celebrate a little bit more of like the, you know, the digital contemporary or, uh, you know, 1781 element of it, you know, by having the strings play on, on top of it. So I've always loved that figure. I've always loved Hamilton's raps within it. I love that we put a dance break in the middle of it because that wasn't there in Lynn's original uh, version. That was something that, uh, you know, it just felt like the, the song called out for a big instrumental moment and I'm glad that Lynn uh, let me kind of like fly on that one and uh, I remember creating the ending with Lynn I remember that that ending came abruptly on its original form but then that was one of those moments where we sat together and came across the idea of repeating the word down 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 and that felt like the the right way to end it so yeah you know I love that that song has a, has a journey within it and once again this is a, what's beautiful about Lynn's demo is that you could hear the shape of it you can hear that it started small that it had a drop and then it had this section where it, it peels away a little bit and then it grows again. You know, the intention and the direction, the roadmap of what Lynn created and wrote was so clear to me that it just became about distributing it to a band, coming up with vocal arrangements and, and fleshing out what was already a strong composition. The final song, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, tends to have a devastating effect when you see this musical i think when people get to the line about the orphanage they tend to dissolve into tears tell me about arranging that song and just knowing and planning for an emotional assault on the audience wow well um what's amazing is that a lot of that was taken from uh the book uh ron chernow's amazing biography ends with eliza and it talked about, you know, how she outlived him and the things that she did in her life and, and uh, after, after Alexander Hamilton was gone. And um, that song came very, very late in uh, one of our workshop processes. And I think the first time we presented the entire musical, Act 1 and Act 2, as a reading, I think Lynn finished that finale probably, I, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been the day of the final reading or the day that we were having an audience or it might have been the day before. I don't remember, but I, all I know is that Lynn wrote it like overnight basically and we had to present it really soon after. But Lynn had told us that in the writing of it, like every time he wrote about something amazing that Eliza did, like he would just burst into tears just writing it at home. And, you know, and, and because it was amazing what, what she 
did with her life. And again, that theme about time and, and what do we do with it? What, what are we here on this earth to do? And, and what are we going to make of it? And what, what's our legacy going to be? And, um, you know, that orphanage, is, is, all that stuff is true. All the stuff that is mentioned is amazing. And I love that, um, you know, as you hear Liza list all these things, it has this kind of... Uh, um, it, it's, it just keeps going, right? It's like, and I did this, and I did that, and I also did this, did this other thing, da, 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 and then it gets to, like you said, that tearjerker moment where she just kind of, everything just pauses for a moment, and because of that pause, because of that silence, what follows next has even more weight than all the things that led up to it. And she mentions the orphanage, and yeah, and then there's the tears flow, because you think about what that means, right? And what parenting means, right? What caring for someone means, what it must mean to to care for someone that had been abandoned or forgotten or, or, or left to their own devices, you know, much like Alexander was when he had to come to the United States to, to make a name for himself in that way. And there's something so just beautiful about that. And, you know, moving on with the lyric, when she says, in their eyes, I see you, Alexander, I see you every time. It, like, it, it's so beautiful. And I remember seeing the staging for that once it was done and just being so moved. And it felt like such a... Um, powerful way to end the musical and um yeah i'm, I'm just uh, it, it's something i'm really proud of and I'm, I'm proud of the orchestrations of it the arrangement of it the, it, it just felt like everybody was really coming together to create it and uh, and to come up with this really beautiful and, and moving finished product to to kind of end our evening and to celebrate the, the people that we were singing about what musical moments still stand out the absolute most little things that people might notice only subconsciously if there's a couple things that you're proud of what the two of you did that might be really tricky that maybe no one realizes how tricky it is. <laughs> wow. Well, um, I could think of a couple of things. Like, they won't be necessarily tricky. You know, one thing that I, that I always think is kind of fun is uh, in Right Hand Man. So let me preface this by saying that, to me, some of the characters in the show are represented by certain instruments. Like, you know, I find that... Um, you know, I, I use the cello a lot to signify things for Burr. There are times that the harp appears a lot when Angelica is mentioned. But to me, the role, the actual character, Alexander Hamilton, to me, feels like rhythm. And it feels like pulse and, and drums and, and syncopation. And, and there's something really, uh, you know, to me, Hamilton is, is drums. And if you listen in Right Hand Man, there's a moment where Burr comes in to talk to George Washington. And all you hear is the sound of the strings, you know, playing this kind of... Uh, very simple figure underneath and there's no drums happening at all and that's because you know Burr is talking and trying to make his case to Hamilton uh, to, to George Washington sorry but as soon as Hamilton enters the room the drums enter and all of a sudden there's foundation to what Hamilton is saying because Hamilton possesses that anchor that Burr does not and uh, that's just like a cool little like ism that I, that I threw in there that I thought was kind of fun um you know, there's like little Easter eggs, like for example, when in the finale, when uh, when Angelica appears, you hear her harp, you hear her celeste, you hear her central figure, the boom, boom, da, 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 which is her central motif. So you hear that. There's period instruments that occur throughout, like when you hear it's quiet uptown, you hear the sound of a hammered dulcimer, which is a, a you know a popular instrument at the time. There's a moment in the song A Winter's Ball where the the music has the feeling of of gavotte which is a popular dance style of that era. So I, I tip, the, tip the hat to that musical framework. Yeah, those are some, some ideas that come to mind. Just like little kind of 
things that are more like, you know, for, for nerdy arranger composer types, you know, even as I'm telling you these things, I'm like pushing up the, the imaginary glasses up on my, on the bridge of my nose, you know, <laughs> but uh, this is arguably a bit outside of your purview, but you were involved since the beginning. Lynn recently acknowledged the validity of a certain vein of critique and discussion, which is an obvious point that the protagonists of the show, these characters in, in real life, many of them were slaveholders and or supporters of slavery. And then the trickiness of casting black or otherwise non-white actors in those roles and all the complications, good and bad, that come with achieving that twist. Lynn recently said that he accepts that criticism and said he was trying to compress very complicated lives into the length of a Broadway show. But I was curious what you recall of the contemporaneous discussions of this issue and what was said at, at the time. Obviously, the issue of slavery is mentioned within the show. It's grappled with to a certain extent within the show, but it's, it's not at the center of the narrative. So what would you say about that? A couple of things come to mind. And for this, you know, I'll kind of draw on quotes that uh, a lot of our you know, team have said that really resonate with me. And, you know, as you mentioned, yes, you know, when you're creating a story, you have to have a point of view. You have to decide what is the, the lane that you want to stay in. What, what's, the, what's your focus? What's your um, direction within what you're trying to say? And yeah, Lynn, as you said, he was trying to tell the story of Hamilton. And these are the points that he felt could fit into the two and a half hour musical without kind of branching off in a way that would make the story feel unfocused in terms of what the central theme was trying to uh, highlight and illuminate. It, that's not to say that the show couldn't have been a completely different story and a completely different direction and have focused more on, you know, the fact that these founding fathers were slaveholders or focus more on the abolitionist movement within. That could have been a very uh, well-constructed and thought-out musical. And that's not the one that this one was. And, and uh, another creator could absolutely make that the focal point of something that they want to write. It's all about the choices as a storyteller of what you want to tell at that time. And then uh, one thing that Andy Blankenbuehler, our choreographer, said so well is that, you know, one of the things that the show talks about is that, you know, the creation of a country is a messy thing. And we don't always have the answers at the time. But just even talking about it, just even addressing the fact that we don't have the answers and just getting the, the conversation started like that is also a way to something to highlight it and to, to bring up. Because, yeah, you know, there are like blips of moments where it, you know, the slaveholder thing is mentioned within our show, but it's not the focal point. But yet just at least bringing it up there and making that a topic of conversation is something that could be uh, then looked at and then scrutinized and taken apart and, and, and discussed. And you know, I once heard David Diggs talk about, and also Chris Jackson talked about, trying to come to terms with the fact that they're playing these characters that were slaveholders. And what does that mean? Like, how do they grapple with that as being African-American men about trying to play these people that owned people? Which is, you know, it's uh, it boggles the mind. And, and as David said, you know, yes, uh, Thomas Jefferson was an amazing writer, and he was also a piece of shit. Both things can be true. And what do you, uh, what do, you do with that? Like, how does that, what, what kind of conflict does that create as you develop the character? You know, what does that mean? And I think it actually just brings a, a really, uh, it brings a conversation up in a way that is worth talking about. There's ways in which arguably this show is really a fantasy about the Founding Fathers or even fanfic about the Founding Fathers. I don't know if that's a perspective you remember hearing early on. Well, what I have heard is, it's interesting, you know, some people uh, have been criticizing our musical and saying, oh, it, it makes Hamilton a hero. But what's interesting is that like, 
you know, Lynn was joking about it. He's like, a hero? Like, what show were you watching? Like, in our show, Hamilton's narcissistic. He's like, you know, bullheaded, you know, completely uh, demolishes the marriage with his wife by having an affair and writing about it. You know, he's deeply, deeply flawed. So, you know, I feel like, yes, maybe our musical celebrates his creations and all that stuff. But like, you know, to, to use the word hero, you know, there's there definitely a lot of stuff that he did that is all amazing. But there's a lot of stuff that, and there's a lot of ways in which he went about it that were like, well, you know, there, there was probably a, a kinder, <laughs> more uh, uh, nicer way to go about doing the things that you were doing. But, uh, you know, that that is uh, who he was. And yeah, there, there are times that we choose to present the warts of him and there are times that we choose to point out the, the amazing stuff that he did as well. So uh, again, both things can be true. You ended up learning a lot from the live bands of people like Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? That was an influence on how you approached the arrangements. Yeah, especially like, you know, when you see them perform on whether it was Jay-Z Unplugged or, you know, or seeing live performances of Beyonce or even for me, like I still remember hearing Prince on Saturday Night Live and being like, oh my God, that sounds like a record. It's so well produced. Like when you hear, you know, quote unquote, contemporary music sounding that clean played by a live band like my eyes widen and my ears perk up so that was definitely something i was hoping to try to emulate in the show and then the fact that the roots came in and helped with the cast album did you then ever take anything that you i mean the show was obviously already deep into production but did that work with them on the album ever filter back into what the live show was did anything change based on what you learned from them Oh, that's interesting. Well, I would say this. Their contribution to the album was so monumental for us because they gave us permission to treat our cast album and go further in the direction of having it sound like a hip-hop record and really, like, bringing out the boom bap, you know, really, like, focusing on the drums and taking chances with distortion on, on drum sounds and, and uh, delay on vocal sounds. Like, they, uh, uh, they kind of, in a way, like, made us think outside the box and what the record could sound like. In terms of going backwards and, and applying it to the show, that it was a little harder because by then the show was set and, and frozen, quote-unquote, so it becomes harder to apply that kind of stuff. But... You know, I, I would like to think that, uh, you know, what they brought to the record is something that I carry with me and therefore try to keep in mind for any other records I work on in the future in terms of like how to be untethered and how to allow yourself to, to think big in those ways. So I, I really uh, credit them for that. But um, I think the live show and the record was after the same thing in terms of trying to get some low end into the spectrum and try to really like enjoy that the... the the drum and the percussive nature of the show, uh, lean into the electronic elements when we want to, lean into the acoustic elements when we want to highlight that. So yeah, Hamilton to me feels like a good hybrid of so many things. And, and um, yeah, I, I love the fact that we get to just dabble in all of that and, and that that becomes the framework of our show and our score. And finally, what were you supposed to be working on right now? And what are you working on right now? Because, uh, you know, as with everyone, but perhaps in some ways more than everyone, you're the what you do for a living has been uh, terribly disrupted by yeah. the, uh, this pandemic. Well, the fortunate thing is that some of the stuff that I've been working on, I've still been able to work on here at home. For example, you know, the finishing touches for the film was something that I was able to do from home. Uh, the finishing touches for the In the Heights movie is something that is still very much going. And um, yeah, the shooting schedule for the film Tick, Tick, Boom had to be halted. So we're now we're trying to figure out when we get that back in, in gear. But uh, yeah, there's definitely a little bit of a, a feeling of pause at the moment, and we'll see when things get uh, the green light to go ahead and proceed as we as we had. Because, you know, as artists, like you know, you see it even now. Like, right? there's this need to create. 
there's this need to get out there and do something and to collaborate and to com- to commune and to, to, to be together. And you see that happening even during the pandemic, right? We're still finding ways to communicate, right? You and I are still finding a way to get on Zoom and, and, and have this chat. You know, we still crave that connection and still long for that ability to uh, to make something out of what we have and to generate and to create. And, and um, you know, that, that fire is still burning and we're still finding ways uh, to make that happen. And that, that is a true true mark of the resilience of the human spirit, for sure. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Brian, thank you so much for having me, man. As you know, I'm a huge Rolling Stone fan and nerd, so I'm uh, honored that you asked. Thank you. Oh, no, it was my pleasure. So that is our show for today. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.